Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot, and sitting opposite me is Liam. And here we go again, it's not deja vu, it's another weekly podcast from Cinementalist. <laughs> I just have no other way of doing the intro. <laughs> I can recite that in my sleep now, it's incredible. Uh, how's it going, Liam? Are you okay? Splendid. Absolutely splendid, yes. Yeah? Well, not absolutely splendid. You know, just kind of middling splendid. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not complete dog shit. So I thought you were coming in with some real enthusiasm this time. No, no. Okay. No. <laughs> splendid is a word that isn't used enough these days. Splendid, yeah. I don't. Really, you don't really hear people using splendid anymore. I think the only times I really hear people use the word splendid is when they use it in a sort of jovially sarcastic tone because yeah. it's like now an anachronism. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, oh, splendid. Oh, splendid. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, superb as well. I overuse superb, I think. I just, yeah, I just think it's one of those words that needs to come back. Superb. See, I, because obviously my old man is a very big cinephile as well. And whenever he would talk about something that he really loves, so it could be a film, but it could also be anything. He would always describe it as fabulous. Mm. And I've kind of picked up that trait and a couple of people have gone like, like, why are you always oh, fabulous? Like, why are you using kind of? I said, what, what? What's wrong with fabulous? No, no, no it's a good word. fabulous. Yeah. Is fabulous is more than appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. Why are you being a homophobe? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry for that digression. <laughs> okay, then. Well, let's kick off into film news this week. Got a few good articles here. Our uh, first thing I wanted to talk about: Star Trek. There Star is, Trek. There is to be a new film from J.J. Abrams, and it is top secret. Um, so we don't really know that much about it. All we really know is that it's been given a release date and that is June the 9th, 2023. It's a bit lazy, isn't it? Well, it's... Oh, it's started. We don't need to give them any vague synopsis details. We don't need to generate any interest in it because it's Star Trek. It thing sells itself. Yeah, and I've fallen out with J.J. Abrams a bit. Whatever happened, I wanted to say, I did a little bit of research into this earlier, um, to the Quentin Tarantino's Star Trek film. Because <laughs> that was the maddest thing I'd ever read. That sounds like one of those discussions you have if you're a couple of film fans drunk late at night, as we often are. You have that discussion about, wouldn't a Quentin Tarantino Star Trek film be funny? Except it really did. He's written the script and everything. And CBS have shelved it. Which doesn't surprise me, really. What surprised me is that it was ever sort of even half greenlit in the process. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I cannot imagine Quentin Tarantino writing a, uh, a Star Trek movie or what that would even look like. But I was desperate to see what that would turn out like. It looked like it was going to go ahead for a really, really long time. Quentin Tarantino sci-fi in as a general concept sounds kind of mind Yeah, any sci-fi film from Quentin would be weird. You know, like a xenomorph who's a big fan of Pam Greer or something. I mean, like, how would it... <laughs> that anachronistic <laughs> thing that he does so well, that fine line that he's able to walk, I don't see how that would translate to Star Trek in the slightest. <laughs> but I'm massively, massively curious as to what that film was supposed to be because for a long time, it really looked like that was going to happen. And CBS are famous as well for being, they're quite litigious when it comes to the Star Trek franchise. They really want to protect it as their IP. And to give it to Tarantino, which is, you know, he's, he's going to make it hyper-violent, which is something Star Trek should never be. But I kind of want to see what that was. It does, when you say, like, it does sound like the kind of thing where, you know, some, you know, a guy, a bunch of guys, you know, they've hit the bong really hard and it's like, man, what if Reservoir Dogs 
was in space. You know, you know like Samuel Jackson as Uhura. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I want to see how he managed to shoehorn all the actors he likes to work with into a, into a Star Trek pod, but we will never know. It seems like that's never going to happen now, but the fact that it came that so close, shame. the that's fact that it came so close to happening just boggles my mind. It's bizarre that he even got that close. Dangling the carrot. It's sitting in one of Quentin Tarantino's script drawers, which I'd love to have a rifle through, you know, regardless, I think any film fan would. But there you go. Oh dear, never mind. The things that could have been. Eh? Absolutely. Memories. Yeah. Uh, next article this week is from Collider. Mike Flanagan is to direct the season of Passage, a horror movie set on Mars. Okay. So this is Mike Flanagan. Um, he's behind the Haunting of series. Mm-hmm. So was it the Haunting of Blind Manor and the Haunting, haunting of, of Hill House? Hill House. Haunting of Blind yeah. Manor. And um, which you really enjoyed. You actually is. I think the only time you've reviewed TV on this podcast. I really, really liked both Hill House and Blind Manor, and uh, I think that Flanagan has also got a great uh, feature-length filmography under his belt as well. He did uh, Doctor Sleep as well. He did, yeah. You were, I seem to remember you were fairly up on. Like, you, uh, aspect, you, had, you had a critique, but you liked it. Yeah, like with Doctor Sleep, I was a little bit mixed because I I liked the way that they approached Danny Torrance's adulthood, and I thought the True Knot were very compelling villains. The way that the film was related to the Kubrick Shining I found that pretty jarring. Mm. But with regards to stuff like Absentia, Oculus, and Hush, I think stuff like that is all terrific. So I'm I'm a fan. I'm definitely a, fa- a Flanagan fan. I think he's really good. Well, this is him taking a step into sci-fi horror. And this is apparently based on a novel, The Season of Passage, by author Christopher Pike. And uh, Deadline reports that Flanagan will not only direct, but also produce, along with his intrepid pictures partner, Trevor Macy and Universal Pictures. Oh, there's an official synopsis and it's weird. Are you ready for it? <laughs> Go ahead, please. Dr. Lauren Wagner was a celebrity. She was involved with the most exciting adventure mankind has ever undertaken, a manned expedition to Mars. The whole world admired and respected her, but Lauren knew fear. Inside, voices entreating her to love them. Outside, the mystery of the missing group that had gone before her, the dead group. But were they simply dead or something else? What? Now, I read that out verbatim with the, the full stops, the periods in the right places. That's, uh, I had to read that four times earlier to make sure I wasn't having a just looking at it going, what? Yeah, it's, just, it's really, really weirdly written. <laughs> the dead group, full stop. It's just absolutely bizarre. But sci-fi horror is my bag, man. Mm. I, I know you're the horror hound on the podcast, but I'm the sci-fi hound. And yeah, you know, Event Horizon, Alien, all of that. It's sci-fi and horror mixes so well. Oh, did you see that bullshit tweet that L. Hunt came out with the other day? Arguing that Alien can't actually be a horror film because it's set in space. How the fuck does that make any sense? Uh, her justification was essentially you can't that, blend horror with any other genre. It's impossible. Yeah, because she she essentially justified it as horror is all about the eldritch and uh, the complete, the completely unknowable. And because space, because outer space, space is entirely known. I mean, isn't that? I mean, it was a bullshit take, and yeah. people people completely <laughs> people completely pulled her up on it. Yeah. But this is also a woman who um, wrote a critique in The Guardian slating There Will Be Blood and her entire justification of why There Will Be Blood isn't good is because her attention span is terrible. Oh, she just couldn't. And and there wasn't, and there wasn't any pronounced female characters in the film, though. And 
I'm sorry, but I don't want to offend anyone, but I've never liked that attitude because a lot of my favourite films are uh, centred on uh, female lead characters. Mm. I don't get, oh, where's the guys? Yeah. I can't, you know, it's, I mean, I, I just, I found it very annoying. But anyway, you know, to hell that's with her. A, yeah, no, it's a bizarre take. Just bizarre chatting take. absolute shit. But I think she was probably trolling, to be honest. Fair enough. Uh, next up, you've been writing a lot of Tom Holland stuff recently. Well, uh, two two of them. Two of them, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm the video game, resident video game nerd of the podcast, so we've got two in one here. This is uh, the Uncharted movie. I'm, is this, this is originally a video game? Yeah, so the Uncharted series of games, of which I believe there are four. I've only played a couple of them. Um, starring, well, the lead character is called Nathan Drake and he is being played in the film by Tom Holland. Okay. Uh, it's had its release date pushed back multiple times. Obviously, this was going on during the whole COVID fiasco. But apparently they finished filming on this one. So uh, the release date is currently set at Friday, the 18th of February, 2022. So they finished filming now and they're going to be in post-production for, well, a year, essentially. Okay. (laughs) Now, knowing the Uncharted games, there's a hell of a lot of sort of action sequences and madcaps. So obviously a lot of CGI involved. So obviously that's going to stretch the film out a little bit. You think that there's been a lot of, quite a bit of hype for this because the Uncharted games are, they're not so fantastical that you couldn't see them being translated to a good film. Yeah, they're quite cinematic in a lot of ways. They are essentially trying to ape action movie set pieces and things like that. So the conversion seems to, at least in theory, work on this one. But yeah, it's going to be essentially a year before you get to see. But why can't they just use practical effects and fight choreography? If it kills your actors, just get more. You know, (laughs) just hurry the fuck up. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, killing Tom Holland, that would be a hell of an insurance form, wouldn't it? Which well, it is the thing. We're I mean, not advocating for it, by the way, before anyone jumps on it. No, I'd be I mean, like him. The fact, the fact that he's associated with it does pique my curiosity a little bit because like I was saying the other week, the problem with, there was, Chaos Walking was not a terrible film because of Ridley or Holland or Mickelson's performances. It was a terrible film just because everything else about it was absolutely bullshit. Yeah. But The Devil All the Time, Holland was absolutely fabulous in it. And in Cherry, he was absolutely fabulous in it. I do really, I rate the kid. I think he's good. Mm. So, um, and I do think that if something has his name stapled to it, that's, uh, you know, reasonably a thumbs up sign. Well, this is going to be a major blockbuster as well. I mean, the franchise is huge and it's one of those IPs as well that's absolutely massive. Like if you release a... Uncharted 5 or whatever tomorrow it would be one of the biggest selling games of the year it's got a huge following behind mm. it and Tom Holland has a huge following as well for I mean Spider-Man fans for a start there's obviously that superhero association but what I think is kind of cool actually is that he's also branched out into a lot of different genres of films uh, many of which you've liked well I think um, The Devil All The Time is probably one of the best uh, southern gothic well actually it's not southern sorry uh, midwestern gothic to be more accurate because it takes place in Ohio mm. But um, I love that kind of, you know, um, scuzzy, uh, rural American, you know, place, you know, a a hole where all the denizens are shitbags. I love that kind of Mm. subgenre fiction. And I think that that movie does it absolutely perfectly. And it's, uh, I think, I'm hoping that that will go down as one of Holland's best works in his overall career when he's obviously a bit... Yeah, hopefully that'll be one of those ones, Yeah, whenever yeah. someone mentions Tom Holland, someone picks up... Well, because I, I, I agree with... I, I think it was one of the best films of 2020, but it actually got quite a lot of average reviews, which I thought were bollocks, but there you go. Uh, some news coming in about the long-delayed and long-awaited Dune movie. Oh, yes. Well. 
Um, this is from screenwriter Eric Roth, who has recently confirmed that the upcoming June film, and bear in mind how many times it's been delayed, et cetera, et cetera, um, was specifically written as the first part of a two-part story. Uh, I've got a quote from him here. It's completely the first half. Yeah. I didn't know when we started, so I think I adapted a little more than the first half and started going to the second half of the book. But I've seen the film, and it's pretty much the first half. So this has understandably upset quite a few June fans in that they've had to wait all this time for what is hopefully going to be a decent June film, and they've only done half the book. See, the, one of the uh, kind of USPs straight from the horse's mouth of Denis Villeneuve mm-hmm. is that this adaptation was going to be as fervently faithful to the novel as he could possibly make it. Oh, it's well, a long book. <laughs> Yes, it's a long book, but I mean, there is that thing that uh, people say, isn't there? And I think it's quite re- well reasoned in that nobody translates every single page verbatim from book to screen because no, that it's, would be terrible. Yeah, it's but not possible. If you're if you're faithful to if you're essentially faithful to the events and you have a knack for translating the overall feel of the book and its the sequential happenings in it to screen, then you know, in theory, at least, you've made a successful adaptation, as in artistic. It's successful in terms of artistic integrity, not like financially successful per se. But yes, if he if he's saying that, oh yes, it's going to be so much more. It's going to be much more faithful, resolutely more faithful than Lynch's adaptation, or the miniseries even. And now it's only half the story. Mm. I mean, that's. That's, that is kind of disappointing. Well, as well, Roth's involvement was one of the things that got a lot of people excited about it because he's a legendary screenwriter. And um, this is from an article in Collider. And he reminded Collider that he's 76 years old and noted that although he wrote a treatment for the second June film, he's done as much as I can do. So, which to me suggests he's sort of washing his hands of it, that he's sort of put all his effort into the first one. He's gone, look, I'm 76 years old. I'll write you a brief outline for the second. You guys can go from there, okay? So, the, I don't know. This sort of seems like a bit of a trouble behind the scenes thing going on there. There's some sort of fragmentation going on here. And how long is it going to take to make? I mean, June, the film that still hasn't been released yet, has taken forever to make. In order to get the full cinematic story of June, you could be looking at you know another four, five, six years before the full thing's complete. So this has uh, understandably dampened some fan expectation. Well, when I, I mean, when did news of this adaptation of Dune first break? What was it, late 2019? Yeah. Because pre- the projected initial release date, obviously, before all of this stuff happened. I want to say 2018, actually, I think. But yeah? Yeah, it's, it's like a pre-production thing. Okay, I thought it was um, a year later than I that, could be but, wrong, but that's my, my feeling. So, yeah, so, but, but essentially since news first broke that Denis Villeneuve was going to be helming a brand new Dune adaptation with his usual, you know, kind of flair that he's become celebrated for. So people have essentially had to wait two years for that now, and it's getting even more uh, paltry in terms of uh, reasons to be excited. Well, even more than that, Villeneuve has gone on record saying that he thinks Dune heading straight to streaming is terrible news for the possibility of a sequel. So there's the possibility you might get half of Dune and that's it. (laughs) <laughs> which right. is yeah that's uh it's sort of worrying stuff isn't it because this has been so highly anticipated the trailer looked great well it looked bizarre actually but bits of it looked really great and sort of gave me a bit of buzz about it and oh man there's, there's, there's always been this thing about june as well that it's regarded in a lot of sectors and a lot of fandoms as being uh unfilmable that so many people have tried and that it's always been an absolute mess and looking at what's going on with this and the fact that they've got 
half of the book in one film, half of the book in a potential second film and the director thinks actually it's got a low probability of happening. That just doesn't inspire confidence that this is going to be a, uh, a the, oh, what's the term I'm looking for? The definitive piece of work that everyone's hoping it will be. How terrible would it be if all the people who have been psyched for this adaptation... I know, right? When it comes out, they survey it, and the first thing that it makes them do is go right back to David Lynch's Dune and go, at least he fucking tried. At least he finished it. At least he tried. At least he completed it. (laughs) That would... I hope that doesn't happen. That would be diabolical. Good news, Liam. There's a new Liam Neeson film in the works. Oh, you were being sarcastic. (laughs) Okay, right. Well, I reviewed... What was it? Honest Thief? Yeah, on the yeah. premium podcast, which is just hilarious for all the wrong reasons. Did you like uh, Non-Stop and uh, The Commuter as well? They're all the same film in my head, you know that. I just can't differentiate between them. It's Liam Neeson plays uh, gruff, oh, aging assassin. Liam Neeson plays Liam Neeson. Well, it looks, like, just... we, looks like we've got another one. Because <sighs> uh, Liam Neeson has lined up some interesting co-stars for his latest action thriller, Memory, which will see him joined by Guy Pearce, Monica Bellucci and Harold Torres. Uh, the film hails from Martin Campbell, director of the James Bond movies Goldeneye and Casino Royale. So a bit of pedigree going on there. And finds Neeson playing Alex Lewis. Now, who is... Uh, Liam, you know nothing of this film, I presume. Right. Um, no, no, sorry. Yes, I, I, I've not heard of it before. So Alex Lewis. Who is Alex Lewis as a character? He's being played by Liam Neeson. Who is Alex Lewis? Alex Lewis is a former mercenary. Very, very close. An expert assassin. Oh. <laughs> with a reputation for discreet precision. Yeah. Uh, isn't that a bit redundant? <laughs> that sounds like a tautology. You would hope that an expert assassin would be very precise. You would think, <laughs> wouldn't you? You could even say that Alex might have a particular set of skills. Yes. Yes. Skills that make him a nightmare for... Oh, it's going to be another one for me in the premium, mate. Particular kinds of people. I've seen so many Liam Neeson films now, and uh, just... I wasn't even a huge fan of the first Taken, to be honest. Everyone seemed to love the first Taken. I thought it was okay. People really, really rate that film. And it was, I found it horribly great. And a large part of it was Liam Neeson beating up Eastern European people. And I guess that's what does it. For, I'm not saying it's a bad film, but it's... See, I remember when... do much for I, saw, I remember when my parents went to the cinema to see uh, Taken 2. I came back and said, took. what was it like? Yeah, Taken. <laughs> and my mum said... Oh, it's, it's, it's absolutely nothing on the first. And I'm thinking, well, what does it turn into fucking Tarkovsky halfway through? <laughs> it's like the, the the first one was... It's lacking the, the existential dread of the, of the first one. Yeah. yeah, I remember, you know, down our former watering hole, I, you know, I brought... Because I do own the DVD because it's a laugh. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's the kind of film... It's a, like, a mate's film. It's it? like, let's get pissed, let's eat some nachos and let's watch Taken because it will be fun. Yeah. Not... Hmm, you know, this this film is ripe for thematic mining, isn't it? really it? makes you think. Yeah. <laughs> what if my daughter was taken and I had to be the man with a particular set of skills? Yeah. And a massive racist, seeing as all the villains seem to be Albanians and Arabs and yeah, no, Kurds. And not like, many people pointed that out, but it's, yeah. it seems to be, you know, for a while in like the 70s, it was the Russians. And there's, yeah. every now and then there's a, a, a race, an entire yeah. genre of people, if you like, yeah. where it's... Okay, for the next 10 years, you're allowed to just murder these people mercilessly. It is. It's like, it's like oh, do you, know, do you want to know how the telltale signs for a human trafficker? Well, they talk kind of like this, and they have very kinky black hair, and they have sharp features. Yeah, and it used to be, hello, Mr. Bond. And they have names <laughs> like Samir, and this is yeah. terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But anyway, there is to be more Liam Neeson stuff, and hopefully at some point soon he might do something interesting, we shall see. I would love that. I would love to see the resurgence of Liam Neeson. Quentin Tarantino, take note. Give him an actual 
you know, a job. Do you know, do you know a Liam Neeson role within recent years that was actually, in terms of its beneficial occupation in the film, occupancy in the film, I liked him in Widows by Steve McQueen. Oh, I didn't see that. Because I, I, I remember thought, your review of it. It was. Uh, I thought it was very, very yeah, I, I loved it. Partic- I mean, I, I particularly loved Viola Davis and Daniel Kaluuya in it. Mm. But I thought that Liam Neeson in Widows, because that was a complete deviation from this ridiculous fucking action hero coda that he's giving his cinematic legacy. I thought that Widows was a really nice change of pace to that. Yeah, there's that phrase that I often use that oh, it keeps the swimming pool heated. Yeah. Like how big is Liam Neeson's fucking swimming pool? That's what I want to know. <laughs> so the Adriatic Sea. So, man, I, I need to make like 80 million this year. Otherwise, I'm just not going to be able to feed my kids. It'll always be too small. <laughs> it's never going to end. He's got a pool cleaner with a particular set of skills. <laughs> anyway, anyway, we must get on with the rest of the podcast because Liam has two films to review. Certainly do. Liam, where are we going in the cinematic world this week? Okie dokie. So... I believe it was last week where you informed me about uh, this new Korean yes. adventure on Netflix, Night in Paradise. From the same director who brought us uh, I Saw the Devil. Well, actually, it's from the same writer as I Saw the Devil. Oh, did I get that wrong? No, but I got it wrong as well in my write-up. Because, <laughs> um, because the, the funny Olives. thing is, the funny thing is, with Night in Paradise, because I watched it, and there's aspects of it that remind me of a bittersweet life. And I, and I, I but it was always oh, kind of like a Kim, uh, Kim Ji Woon's A Bittersweet Life. And then I and then I went back and looked at I Saw the Devil and it's like oh no I Saw the uh, it's like I Saw the Devil was also directed by Kim Ji Woon but it was written by Park Right, Chung. well I'm blaming the article on this one because I was reading verbatim. So. No, no, that's fair enough. Like, yeah, Ordinarily, but, I would admit so, my mistakes, but so I was yes, reading from an article written and directed by the same screenwriter for I Saw the Devil. Which I do you know what I actually watched that this morning. Oh, it's a fun well, film yeah, for a, a not, morning watch not, session. Not in preparation for this, but because I felt like sticking it on. I hadn't seen it in a few years, and it's still as good as ever and mentally scarring and all that. But uh, yeah, I tucked into Night in Paradise. So this is the story of uh, Taiju. And Taiju, played by Um Taiju, he is an enforcer for a organised crime syndicate in uh, Seoul. Is it Seoul? Seoul? Seoul. It is Seoul. Mm-hmm. I've, I should know that already. It's terrible. It's so rare that I know the pronunciation off the cuff and you don't. <laughs> Terribly sick stupidity of me. But yeah, uh, Taiju is an enforcer for um, a sole crime syndicate headed by Yang, played by Parko San. And uh, the thing with Taiju is that he occupies uh, essentially a legendary position at a very young age in the South Korean criminal underworld because he's in his late 20s, early 30s. But he has been noted by rival criminal organizations for being an extremely good brawler and just uh, having a sort of like when it cut, you know, he, he's got like a Protestant work ethic among gangsters. He does his job. He does what he's told. He doesn't question. He doesn't get out of line. And uh, he's so diligent with this that. Uh, the boss of uh, a rival gang, the Buxion gang, headed by Chairman Do. I love how in a lot of Korean cinema, when you have gangs, they give their bosses, it's not like a Don or a Capo, they call them like executive and director <laughs> and like, you know, the CEO. <laughs> it's, uh, CEO of Gangster Paradise. Yeah, I mean, not by, it just, I mean, I, I suppose it's, it might be some something cultural. A, a translation when, thing, maybe, yeah. Yeah, because when it's, oh, so, so executive director, it's like, well, what do they own? A fucking, you know, a, a wholesaling, like, you know, <laughs> uh, but anyway, I digress. Chairman Doe of the rival boxing gang, he really likes uh, Taiju because of all these qualities, and he would like 
tied you to leave Yang's association and come to be an enforcer for him. Ever the extremely loyal individual, Taiju says thank you, but no thank you. Respectfully, he's like, no, Yang is my, you know, he's a father figure. He's my employer. He's been there for me throughout the years. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a double agent. I'm not going to leave him. I'm fine where I am. A little while later, Taiju's sister and niece, who are essentially his only living family members and the both of whom he absolutely dotes on, they are tragically killed in a car accident. And Taiju had actually been stealing himself for the day that he would become his niece's full-time carer because, as we've shown, his sister is terminally ill and he's trying to do the best that he can to make her last days as comfortable as possible and spending more time around his niece, who's only like a little thing, so he can, you know, it's it's like, it's basically the one thing outside of his criminal trade that, you know, fully humanizes him. It's, some, it's fundamentally the one thing outside of all the rough stuff and the brutality he has to earn a wedge that keeps him going. And he deduces that this car accident was actually a hit orchestrated by the rival gang, German Doe, for refusing his offer of employment. So with Yang's blessing, he whacks out Chairman Doe and a bunch of Chairman Doe's foot soldiers. Now knowing that he is marked for death, he allows his boss Yang to arrange an abscondence to uh, Jeju Island, which is South Korea's largest island, where he will lie low for about a week before fleeing to Vladivostok. On Jeju Island, he is received by Kuto, who is this legendary mobster in the South Korean underworld, used to work for Yang, now lives on Jeju Island, dealing arms, and he lives with his niece, uh, Jayun, who, like Taiju's sister, is also facing her impending death. She's another woman. She's very young. She's a, li- she's a little bit younger than Taiju. She's late 20s, and it's not specified what her disease is, but she's also terminally ill. And she absolutely despises gangsters for reasons that are elucidated. So when these two first meet, they she does not give him like a fucking inch at all. She's very, very rude and dismissive of him. She takes the piss out of him. But, you know, he's trying to lie low. He doesn't want any hassle when he is essentially a guest of her uncle. So he just essentially puts up with it until he starts to snipe back at her a bit. And eventually... It might sound formulaic, but these two start to formulate a bond. Now, I know that's very much a mainstay in these kind of narratives. Oh, they're not getting along very well at first, but then it gives way to a deeper understanding. Technically, yes, but it's actually quite nice and substantively handled in this, I think. But more on that in a minute. While all this is going on, while Taiju is on Jeju Island and he's getting better acquainted with Jai Yun and Kuto's manoeuvring about doing his arms dealing with shadowy motherfuckers in the background, back in mainland Korea, Yang, Taiju's boss, has monumentally fucked up. We become privy to the fact that he has actually been a very bad boy in trying to orchestrate a Machiavellian obliteration of all of his competition in the underworld. But He's completely fucked up. And now he's at the mercy of the now deceased Chairman Doe's lieutenant, Director Ma, who is a very, very, very nasty and scary man indeed. And essentially to try and save his own skin, Yang starts selling people out 
And one of the people he sells out is Taiju. So our hero is all the way over on this island and he doesn't know that there's one hell of a fucking storm a brewing for him back on the mainland. And so this is, it's essentially a melding of, you know, heartfelt humanistic adult drama and absolutely mad balls to the wall action mobster thriller. Okay. Now, oh, what I really, there's a, by the way, overall, my feelings about uh, Night in Paradise is that it's very, very much worth a watch. It's completely fucking mad, but it has a way of transcending its batshittery in a way that actually, um, it, it does really tug at the heartstrings and put a lump in your throat, but not I don't, not in a way that I thought was manipulative, in a way that I actually thought was very effective, and I felt the poignancy because the relationship between the two focal characters, between uh, Taiju and Jiayong, I I believed it. I there was authenticity in it. The focal relationship was extremely believable in my eyes, and it fundamentally, at its core, it's a drama about things like facing up to letting go, coming to the end of one's life, ruminating on what loyalty has cost you, a consideration of uh, who, you know, what makes family as well, because I know you have biological family, but people can sort of transcend that and become family when you form bonds with them, especially bonds that, uh, you know, are tested at the outset by initial frostiness. It's got a lot of warmth in there, palpable warmth, but it's, it's, Almost, it's almost under threat of getting completely undone by some absolutely deranged decisions when it comes to the action sequences. I mean, this film is very, very, very violent. And a lot of that is consistent with its station as an action thriller and extremely well done. But there, for example, there are moments where Jai Yun, the focal woman that uh, Taiju meets on Jeju Island, she turns from a sort of unremarkable girl who's living with a terminal illness and who is quite a crack shot when it comes to target practice with bottles to the female equivalent of John Wick. She just becomes this murdering, mass slaughtering badass in a way that makes you go, where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> that didn't really make a lot of sense. And that occurs a couple of times in the film and it did... It did strain the credulity for me a little bit. However, I actually think the two lead performances are that good that it does smooth over what would be otherwise completely and utterly ridiculous because there are there are script decisions in this film that if they occupy just about any other movie, people go, oh, this is fucking ridiculous. This is bullshit. What a lot. <laughs> you, you, it's, you know, it's like tailor-made for fucking din lobes, this film. But no, because of the heart that it has, it does actually have a, surprisingly a lot of heart. And uh, I think that it's uh, structured in a way that um, allows the film to really get over its hurdles. So Night in Paradise, yes, it's, it is kind of formulaic. It's not going to blow your mind. It's not going to do anything that you wouldn't expect. But the way that it sells its goods, if you like, I actually think there was a lot of power in it. And cool. um, I actually think it's a cool film. Not fantastically memorable, but I think that if you, know, if you, if you enjoy a crime drama, you enjoy something that balances high-octane lunacy with something of a more cerebral and poignant bent. I do think this film does it extremely well. But yes, uh, to, to basically get to that, you will have to wade through a few interludes 
of okay batshit mentalism, but I, I, I at least did not think that it made the. I didn't think that it undid the film seams. If this article that I was reading last week got anything right at all, I do seem to remember this is supposed to be up on Netflix. It is up on Netflix, yes. Aha, well, there's one thing anyway. It certainly is on Netflix, yes. So if you have a Netflix account, you can just whack straight into it. It's not, I mean, it's not a particularly long film either. It's about an hour and 50 minutes. And I don't think any of this, you know, every scene was nicely compact. And yeah, it's, I valued it more as a, as a human drama, if you will, more so than I did as an action thriller. And even though, as I said, some of the accents from the quotient is out of left field and just, you know, it verges on the point of being jarring to the point of stifling enjoyment, but it doesn't actually get that far. And the way it ultimately ties up is, I thought, was quite powerful and profound and very, very emotional. This, I would not put it on a par with things such as Old Boy and I Saw the Devil. And because we, we've spoken of our deep fondness for a lot of South Korean output. It's not as good as that, but it is still very, very good. Okay, so, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Night, in, Night in Paradise gets a thumbs up, definitely. Not that I think I'm Roger Ebert or anything, but yeah. Then I decided to do a bit more digging on Shudder, because I've been talking about how I've uh, sort of gone down the Shudder rabbit hole recently, and I've found quite a few cool things on there. Some other things, not that cool. This is one of those things that's not that cool. <laughs> so this is uh, The Power. This is written and directed by uh, Corinna Faith. And this takes place in East London in 1974. Uh, this is uh, during the time when the miners who were striking were cutting off the power every night, causing nationwide blackouts. And this film introduces us to Val, who's a young upstart nurse, played by Rose Williams. Uh, she's just starting her first day at this mega hospital and she's got a bit of a, a murky past. Things are hinted at when, you know, with regards to when she was at school, she was embroiled in something salacious with a headmaster who might have been a bit of a pervert. And she's quite a, she's quite a jumpy, self-conscious and really, you know, quite reserved girl, very easily panicked. She arrives at the hospital that morning, she sits down with an interview with the matron, who is a very, very stereotypical matron, very hard and unsentimental and failure intolerance, and uh, leaves her under no illusions that if she makes one mistake, she will be out of the fucking picture. So as soon as she gets there, she is met with uh, a rather hard-hearted resistance even though she's bounded in because she want, Val, Val wants to do some good. She, not that she explicitly sees herself as a Florence Nightingale or anything, but you can, she makes no secret of the fact that she's gotten into nursing out of a deep empathy for her fellow human beings rather than just, uh, just a career move, just a self-interested career move. But uh, everyone else in this hospital just seems to be rather narcissistic and wankerish. So Val is essentially the only virtuous individual. Well, as the, because it's all set within one, over the course of one day and one night. And Val, as she's pottering around, she manages to upset the matron. And as sort of a bit of a spiteful retribution, the matron makes Val take that night's night shift. So Val will have to occupy the hospital during the blackouts and man the wards and make sure everything's okay. And Val is absolutely terrified at the prospect of this. But she's got no other option but to acquiesce because otherwise she'll get sacked on the spot. So everyone leaves and Val gets her little torch and she 
goes up to the wards and everything plunges into darkness. Those too early to happen yet. It's, <laughs> it's, um, oh God. So Val goes and starts the night shift and then everything starts to get very, very spooky. <laughs> <clears throat> Your contempt is dripping. Because, phone, I think. because apparently this hospital is haunted by some spectre or another, some invisible spectre that appears to have a predilection for sexually harassing women because there are several uh, scenes of Val walking through pitch black corridors with her feeble night lamp while something tries to pull up her uniform you know, from the hills up and she runs away screaming. And um, she tries to seek help from other people who are present, such as... Um, the nurses on the maternity wing and the weird, creepy maintenance man slash security guard who is um, very, very much a stereotypical 70s pervert. He's an ugly fucker with buck teeth and long shaggy hair and he leers at the women and his favourite song is fucking Chirp, Chirp, Cheap, Cheap by Middle of the Road. So it's, it's, it's explicitly 70s, this one. And so Val is in a... That's the gist. Val is in a haunted hospital and it's a... A haunted house narrative, or in this case, to be specific, a haunted hospital narrative that incorporates commentary on uh, the treatment of women in the workplace and sexual harassment, et cetera, et cetera. So the thing with the power is that it actually starts well enough indeed. It's got a good opening that sets tension very well. There's some great cinematography that films the, the, the in the opening when Val approaches the hospital. It does a wonderful grounds eye view shot of the building in all of its sort of intimidating loom with a nice kind of grey drab cinematography to accompany it. And when Val is left on her own and the majority of the staff have gone home and the hospital plunges into darkness, there is actually there's very, very effective use of lighting that helps build uh, tension. And uh, I was actually on edge and feeling all, you know, goosebumpy. And I was thinking I'm really quite satisfied with the way that this is rolling forward. And it does actually have a few decent jump scares in it because, you know me, I have a notorious hatred of jump scares. But this was actually a movie where at least in the first half an hour, the jump scares were actually very well handled in, in ways that I found entertaining as opposed to infuriating. But around the 50-minute hour mark, it just all goes down the fucking toilet. Now, it's not necessarily that the conceit is bad in and of itself. It's just that the way it's handled is, it just fucking loses itself. It, it trips, it stumbles in this boring, clodding, unsure of its own voice manner. And... um I just completely lost interest in it. <laughs> Fair enough. So, so I mean, it's one of those ones with great opening, great setup, and then yeah. ultimately doesn't satisfy. It's it's a it's a film that teases you with good structure and good atmosphere and good acting for about the first fifty odd minutes, mm -hmm. and then all of that promise goes right out the window for kind of rote and confused script and uh, uh, an ending that, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't actually make any sense because I don't actually think there was good enough nuance set up throughout the duration of the film for the twist ending to be earned. Uh, at the end of the film, I sat there thinking, 
this film was obviously trying to edify me about something. I don't think I've learned anything. <laughs> so it didn't actually do a particularly good job. So, yes, I'm sorry. I know that people are celebrating this film because, you know, yes, Corinna Faith is, I think it's her, you know, script writing and directorial debut. And yes, you know, Rose Williams, she's not a bad actress. She she does, she essentially does the best with what she's given. But, um, no. I, I, I mean, how many ways, you know, how many ways are, I, are there? It's not working for you. No? Yeah. Basically, you know, if you were, if you want to be entertained for 50 minutes and then go, well, that was very fucking disappointing. Stick it on. <laughs> <laughs> How's that for damning with face? <laughs> Okie dokie, fair enough. Okay then, well, this is the slot where I normally do TV of the week. It is. And this week is cancelled. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, reason being is that I'm watching something at the moment and I have a general rule on this podcast that I try and follow. I've only broken it a couple of times where I try and get at least halfway through a TV series before I review it. And what I'm watching at the moment has two seasons and each episode is about 45 minutes to an hour long and there are 20 episodes per season. Wow. Yeah. So I, I need some time to catch up. It must, it must be said though, the couple of occasions, I think it's a couple max, the couple of occasions that you have broken your own rule the shows have deserved it. It's only been when something's been so terrible that I literally cannot force myself to watch any more of it. Yeah, I think I've broken it twice. But anyway, um, it's the, yeah, I'll review that next week anyway, essentially is what I'm saying here. Mm. Instead, I decided to review a film. A film? Yes, because we are indeed sentimentalists and we are a film podcast first and foremost. And the film I decided to review is Godzilla versus Kong. Big monkey v big lizard. Big monkey v big lizard. Much entertainment, yes. theoretically. <laughs> well, okay. Let me get into the setup of this one and strap yourself in for this, guys, because, wow, this is going to be a ride. Um, <laughs> this opens with Kong chilling out on Skull Island, or at least what seems to be Skull Island. He's hanging out, he's swinging through the trees, he's relaxing on mountaintops, he's generally having a nice time of things. And he's roaming around through his jungle paradise when he comes across a little girl standing in amongst the trees in the jungle. And he looks down at her and she holds up a doll she's made out of reeds and sticks and things that looks like a monkey. And she holds it up to him and he pulls a tree trunk out of the ground and he throws it like a javelin towards the sky and it crashes into the sky and breaks open and reveals a bunch of circuitry behind it. So Kong isn't actually living on Skull Island, although I think actually where he is is supposed to be on Skull Island. What he's living in is like a Truman Show style dome above him where he's being held in, in like a research laboratory setting that looks like his natural environment. Uh, we cut to uh, Rebecca Hall, who's playing Eileen Andrews. She's like the Jane Goodall of Kong. She's one of the researchers, got a research team around her. And they have a discussion about how, although they've been trying to research Kong and keep him in a natural environment, he's basically twigged the fact that he's not living in uh, reality. And he's becoming more and more frustrated with his living experience. And they're not sure how much longer they can contain him for. Okay, so we then cut to Brian Tyree Henry, who's playing Bernie Hayes. Uh, he's sitting outside a very dark and kind of cyberpunk industrial facility in his car, and he is recording, of all things, a podcast. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of some kind of weird symmetry going on there. But yeah. uh, he is the owner and host of a conspiracy theory style podcast. And he's speaking to his fans. He's outside, uh, I believe they're called Apex Cybernetics. This company where he's convinced that there is a conspiracy going on there. He's a conspiracy theorist podcaster. And he has decided to go deep cover in this facility. So he's got himself a job as a low-level technician, and he's convinced that they're doing deep, dark, and nefarious things. So he goes into work at this facility. He's talking to some of the other technicians there. He's trying to get ahead and sort of get himself further in and maybe get a promotion. He's trying to chat to the guys and be all matey very, very unsuccessfully, when all of a sudden alarms and sirens start going off because this facility is suddenly attacked by none other than Godzilla himself. And Godzilla essentially destroys this factory where this podcaster is attempting to infiltrate his way in. We then cut to Millie Bobby Brown, who's playing Madison Russell. She's an all-American teenager, um, sitting at school, kind of bored, and she listens to Bernie's podcast, his conspiracy theory podcast. Her dad works for Monarch, which is one of the agencies in the Godzilla Kong mythos. And so he's quite high, high level in this um, Super secret. I thought you were talking about the airline for a minute. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the crossover is, but yeah, exactly. But anyway, she's listening to this podcast. And also, obviously, it's a huge news story that Godzilla, Godzilla has left everybody alone in the, the start of this film for a very long time. There's sort of a truce between the world and Godzilla. Suddenly, Godzilla has turned up. Normally, when Godzilla turns up, he destroys the city and goes on a big rampage. Except this time, he's just destroyed one specific facility. Now, Madison listens to this podcast and she puts two and two together and goes, well, hang on a minute. Why would Godzilla, rather than just going on a random rampage, why would he target a facility in particular? This guy's been saying for ages that Apex Cybernetics have been doing something deep, dark and nefarious. Maybe Godzilla knows something we don't. So she enlists her friend Josh, played by Julian Dennison. He's sort of, uh, he's a bit of a fat, sweaty nerd, to be quite honest. And um, obviously looks up to Madison massively. And she convinces him to steal his brother's van. And they go off to try and meet Bernie, this podcaster, to find out what he knows and potentially get to the bottom of what Apex Cybernetics have been doing to get Godzilla to go so fucking mental. Oh, so Godzilla didn't kill him then? No, no, he survived the facility. Well, the facility Ah, was absolutely wrecked, but he survived. Because plot. Because plot, yes. yes. Still with me? Absolutely. Okay, now we get to the real batshit bit. (laughs) So we are then introduced to Nathan Lind, Dr. Nathan Lind, played by Alexander Skarsgård. Okay. Who looks for all the world like he doesn't know what he's doing there. But here's Dr. Nathan Lind, and he is a scientist that has been sort of disgraced, and he's working out of a basement office. And he is visited by Walter Simmons, played by Demian Bashir, who is the owner of Apex Cybernetics. So he visits the doctor in the middle of nowhere. And the reason that he's visiting Dr. Nathan Lind is that he wrote a book a while ago about the hollow earth theory. Now this theory postulated that inside the planet, there is a hollow earth, another world inside a world. And this is where the Titans have come from. So the Titans being Kong, Godzilla, and any other large BC that's rampaging across the planet. This is where they come from. Um, And he wants Dr. Nathan Lind to lead an expedition into the center of the earth to find what they believe to be a gigantic power source existing there. And in order to do that, they're going to need Kong. Because if his theory is correct, then Kong comes from the hollow earth 
And if you take him to a point where he can get to it, he will lead them to this power source that will lead Apex Cybernetics to be able to continue with their nefarious deeds. Mm-hmm. So what they end up doing, uh, Nathan Lind essentially teleports to Skull Island. I mean, literally, it's just like a cut. All of a sudden, he's in. He's at Skull Island. He talks to Eileen Andrews, the Jane Goodall of Kong. You know, basically, we need Kong to go on this expedition. She goes, no, you can't do that. That'll be unfair on Kong. And he goes, no, I really need you to do it. And she goes, okay, then. And <laughs> what they end up doing is strapping Kong to a container ship, like a shipping container ship with no containers on it, and taking him to Antarctica with a fleet of US Navy vessels. There's destroyers, there's aircraft carriers. This is a huge event. They're going to Antarctica where there's this huge tunnel which they think will lead them to the center of the earth. And they have developed convenient plot-related vehicles that are kind of like spaceships that can survive the immense gravity of going to the center of the earth. Right. Are you with me still? Just about. Yes, so was I at this point. This is all done in about 20 minutes worth of setup. I'm like, okay, okay. And the film kind of assumes that you've seen all the Kong films and all the Godzilla films as well. It kind of just floats over all this stuff like, all of this makes sense. This is a world where... Oh, that's not a good approach. Well, <laughs> it kind, kind of worked. Okay, but anyway, would you believe taking Kong to Antarctica all goes a bit wrong and uh, many, many beastie fights continue from this point onwards? Kind of suspected that, to be honest. Sure. So this is a film with essentially a mad plot, although it's not an unheard of plot because the whole... I'm not entirely up on the Godzilla-Kong mythos thing, but I know the Hollow Earth thing was part of it. And uh, you know, it seems to be pulling on those references as much as I can tell anyway, as somebody that's aware of it in a fringe manner. It seems to be pulling on all those things in a way that you go, okay, I've kind of heard of this before. It seems to be doing an authentic job of it. First thing to say about Godzilla versus Kong is it absolutely does not care about its human characters whatsoever. Like nobody is given any development at all. Literally, absolutely fucking none. Uh, Dr. Nathan Lynn, played by Alexander Skarsgård, is one of those characters that's a complete idiot one minute and incredibly competent the next with no explanation for it. Um, Millie Bobby Brown, Madison Russell, and Bernie, um, Brian Terry, Henry, their whole plot line about investigating what's going on at uh, Apex um, Cyber Systems or whatever it is, Apex Cybernetics, is essentially their exposition machines. They get absolutely no development. They're entirely there to go, oh my God, what's going on over there? What's that? What's this weird company doing? Oh, we're here now. We're explaining the entire plot for you in the background. But <laughs> the question here is, do you really care? Because what anybody wants out of a Godzilla versus Kong film is for, as you said at the start, a big battle between a big monkey and a big lizard. Yeah. This film's got two of them, actually. One about a third of the way into the film. Uh, which I'm not going to reveal the setting on because it would be a bit of a spoiler as to the next events. And one at the end where you have sort of the classic Godzilla Kong fight in a city. And I'm going to reveal what city it is because I mean to say there's a big fight in a city, there's no spoiler for anybody. Everyone knows this is where this film is supposed to go. The city ends up being Hong Kong. And what you've got is a Hong Kong, I mean, Hong Kong kind of looks a bit cyberpunky to begin with, neon lights, that sort of thing. You've got like Hong Kong, but with the cyberpunk dial turned all the way up. Like every building has got big blue and green and yellow neon stripes up the side of it. And you get a huge battle between Godzilla, King Kong, and another party, which I shall not reveal for plot reasons. Mothra. 
<laughs> no. <laughs> Although, good guess. Good guess. <laughs> Something along those lines. And if you're a fan of the Godzilla mythos, I mean, you will have seen this already if you're a fan of the Godzilla mythos, but if you haven't and you're listening, you can probably guess where that's going because it does seem to be pulling in from all these things. It doesn't care about its human characters at all. It's got a mad, mad middle section where everybody goes to the hollow earth which is really psychedelic and trippy and bizarre and over the top. And I felt like I was on mushrooms watching it. It's utterly, utterly weird and bizarre. <laughs> and it's got two big set piece fights. The first set piece fight, I thought was really, really well done. It's really huge scale. It's an interesting idea. There's a twist to it. It's not your average Godzilla Kong fight. I thought it was really, really expertly done. Very thrilling, sort of edge of your seat kind of stuff. The final fight, which is what everybody's here for, is absolutely, utterly brilliant. Oh. I mean, genuinely, stunningly brilliant. This film, it doesn't really care about its own exposition, which is kind of good because it's identified that the audience doesn't really care about the exposition either. What you want is that really big fight at the end, and it is done masterfully well. It's a big, bangy, crashy skyscraper falling down, punchy, neon visual kind of thing. And how many superhero films have we talked about on this podcast where they end like that? There's a big bangy, crashy fight at the end. Except the problem with those is that nine times out of 10, they're really boring. <laughs> it, the, the action's too frenetic. The camera's all over the place. You can't tell what's going on. You can't see who's fighting who or what leg belongs to what arse. And you know, it's absolutely all over the place. This is actually a really, really successful one. It's such a kinetic, punchy, visual... Uh, there's a reviewer cliche that you're not supposed to say visually stunning because everybody says visually stunning when they want to talk about good visuals. I honestly don't know any other way to explain it. It is absolutely... Visually arresting. Visually arresting. Yeah. <laughs> it is absolutely beautifully well mm. done. And you know what? What more do you want out of a Godzilla versus Kong film than an absolutely batshit plot and a huge fight at the end that makes you glad that you've got a big screen TV? What I will say, I mean, there's, how many things have I said on this podcast where it's been like, I think you can get the cinema experience at home. This film, actually, I think you need to see it in the cinema, which is a shame. Oh, right. Because the bigger the screen, I think the more impressive that's going to be. It's so dynamic in a way that so many of those superhero last act fights aren't. It's actually really has you on the edge of your seat. One of the things the film identifies really nicely is that some people are going to be rooting for Kong and some people are going to be rooting for Godzilla. And so it actually plays with that constantly during the fight. You're rooting for Godzilla and all of a sudden Godzilla starts winning. Then you start rooting for Kong because you don't want Kong to get beaten up either. And it sort of plays with this idea. So you're constantly, I was almost sort of swinging my fists at the same time, which is what one of these fights should do. I sat down to watch this on a Saturday night in with my partner uh, with a curry and a, a case of beer, which I thought, you know, ideal watching, I, ideal watching <laughs> conditions for one of these sort of films, right? And you know what? I was not disappointed. The plot is batshit mad. We expected that. The characters are two-dimensional. We expected that too. The Godzilla versus Kong fights, the set pieces of which this film has two, are absolutely magnificently well done. And to my mind, that's all you want out of a Godzilla versus Kong film. Hmm. So in my mind, I mean, it's got so much wrong with it but it gets those bits so right, I didn't care. It's a spectacle film that actually does what a spectacle film is supposed to do. And bear in mind, 90% of them don't. What it does is you come out the under, other end of it feeling like you've seen something mad, visually arresting, that got your heart pumping and slightly special. And because it got those bits right, I think it's a really successful piece. I loved it. I had a really, really good time with it. 
Oh, so sorry if you've already said it, but why do uh, Kong and Godzilla hate each other again? Oh, yeah, there's a there's a hand wave on that. It's um, because they're titans and their species have fought each other since the beginning of time. That's it. It's just what they do. So it's just tradition. Godzilla's species and Kong's species have just had an eternal war, essentially, because they're titans and that's what titans do. <laughs> and that's that's your justification. I mean, the, honestly, the, the justification, the exposition is so thin. But one of the good things about it is every time you start getting bored with it and going, well, this is so silly that I'm starting to get annoyed with it, it actually just moves on. And I'm fine with that. I'm absolutely fine with it. It actually gets to the fights quite, <laughs> quite quickly. And that's what you're there for. I think it's actually quite, I think it's actually quite well judged. But just don't expect anything from the acting. But then why would you? You're here for the big bangy, smashy, sure. crashy stuff. Yeah, yeah. And the big bangy, smashy, crashy stuff is really, really good. And so ultimately, I, th- I think it's a success. I, I would recommend it. It's a fun be a beer popcorn. Like I said, get yourself a curry, get yourself a beer, lie back on the sofa and get ready for a whole bunch of bullshit and a lot of really, really well done action. Well, that's good because, um, I mean, I've seen it doing the rounds and the first thing I thought was, you know, with any luck, that is going to be a Ron Seal jobby. It's going to do what it says on the it, team. It does, yeah, it is. And from yeah. what you're saying, it does exactly that. It is. So. Yeah, yeah. It is, you know, there's a good third to a half of the film you can just ignore. You can, you can have a chat with your mates. You can text somebody. You can get up and do the washing up. The exposition is just does not matter that much. But that in sequence... I just think is just magnificent. And it, these films, a monster movie is all about that end sequence. And yeah. this film actually understands that. And I love that about it. That's awesome. Because no, there's just one other, because I've I've yet to see it, obviously, but I've seen people on Twitter. I've seen some people on Twitter getting a bit heated about this film because things were not incumbent, apparently, that they wanted to be. And a few other people have gone, this is the kind of movie that, you know, it's, it's made for the opposite of that, right? You guys are engaging in not this. Yeah, if you want Shakespeare, don't yeah. look elsewhere. <laughs> you guys, you guys are engaging in this sort of uh, this hostile, uh, sort of aggrieved debate. This film is supposed to be fun, <laughs> you know, <it's>, and, <laughs> and it is. It yeah. is. It, it's one of the best looking. It's bear in mind it's an absolute CGI fest, and often we rebel against CGI fest because it's just a, a boring excuse not to make a film. But this film is all about that CGI. And it's beautiful and it's kinetic and it's dynamic and you can actually follow the action, which is great. It's That's it's, awesome. it's fun. It's a fun film. I think the, the people who are doing this sort of thing, they're probably the same kind of people who post stuff like the worst thing about Disney acquiring Star Wars is now people who didn't care about it before now think it's the best thing ever. Yeah, being being fans of stuff is bad. What do you mean? Star Wars has gone commercial. Yeah, I did. You know, we weird gate. It's almost like it was designed to sell toys in the first. Weird gatekeeping motherfuckers who get stressed over stuff like a big lizard fighting a big monkey. <laughs> <laughs> the big lizard, big monkey fight worth the price of entry. Really, I shall it. check it out, man. Okay then. Well, that brings me on to trivia this week, and of course, it's fucking easy because I'm just on Godzilla and Kong trip. <laughs> what else did you expect me to do, right? Now, let's start off with a bit of Godzilla trivia. His original name, Gojira, was rumoured to be the nickname of a tough guy at Toho Studios. According to Ishiro Honda, who directed the first Godzilla film, there was this big, I mean huge, fellow working in Toho's publicity department. And other employees would say, that guy's as big as a gorilla. No, he's almost as big as a Kajira, which is the Japanese word for whale. Over time, the two mixed, and he was nicknamed Gojira. Oh, well, okay. And there you go. That's the genesis of the whole Godzilla thing. 
Godzilla's best-known weapon is his seriously strong breath, but it's not just any old dragon-style fire breath, it's downright atomic. At times, Godzilla's radioactive breath has been fierce enough to target items in outer space and even vaporize a black hole. By the simple act of breathing, Godzilla can melt steel, evaporate water, and power electrodes. In Godzilla vs. Hedorah, he uses atomic breath to fly by aiming it at the ground and employing it as a propellant, lifting himself as if by jetpack. <laughs> oh, why is that so hilarious? <laughs> there's Rodan, there's Mothra, there's Mechagodzilla, there's Distora Oya. But according what? to Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but according to legendary Godzilla producer Shogo Tomiyama, Godzilla's most threatening adversary is the cute and chubby rodent Pikachu. He said in 2004 that he hoped Godzilla's new film will finally win the hearts of children back from his most dangerous adversary ever, Pokemon. Oh, right. Okay. I assume in terms of rating and children being interested. Very, very clever. So, And a bit of King Kong trivia here. Uh, what's interesting, actually, is if you look up Godzilla trivia, there's a lot about the mythos. If you look up King Kong trivia, it's pretty much all about the film. There's not actually a lot of Kong mythos. Which film? What the, the original, the third, no, thirty-three, the 30, I believe. Yeah. Did you ever see the nineteen seventy-six one with Jessica Lange? I did. Yes. Yeah, that was cool. The eighteen-inch models of Kong, built by Willis H. O'Brien's assistant Marcel Delgado, were the first animation models with metal skeletons and joints. Instead of the jerky movement of models built on wood, Kong moved much more smoothly, giving a greater illusion of life. Delgado covered the skeleton with rubber muscles that actually expanded and contracted as they were moved. The creature was then covered with rubber and latex skin. And rabbit fur. Oh. There you go, yeah. So it was like a, a big leap in animation at that time. Mm. Including what, what we would now recognize as like a stop motion model or whatever. King Kong does appear to be the first. And I imagine a big influence on, because Harryhausen was around at the time as well, wasn't he? Mm. So yeah, interesting stuff. All right. Though Kong's greatest enemy has always been mankind, he's no stranger to duking it out with other giant beasts. One of the more famous sequences from the first King Kong is his fight with the Tyrannosaurus Rex, revolutionary at the time thanks to Willis O'Brien's amazing stop-motion effects. But stop-motion models were not the original vision that the director had in mind. Initially, Marion C. Cooper's idea was to have an actual gorilla fight a few Komodo dragons over a miniature set. <laughs> Cooper even went so far as to pick out a pair of Komodo dragons that he wanted to use for the sequence. However, the idea was eventually scrapped in favour of the stop-motion animation of Kong fighting the T-Rex, mostly due to safety concerns regarding the live animals. It's a good thing Cooper changed his mind, as King Kong would have become one of the first big cases of animal cruelty, rather than a film that pioneered stop-motion effects. <laughs> How are we going to do this? Well, why don't we get an actual gorilla and some actual, actual reptiles? Yeah. <laughs> what a fucking strange mind at work there. For the scenes of Anne in Kong's hand, the hand was attached to a crane and raised 10 feet. First, a technician put her in the hand and closed the fingers around her. Then the hand was lifted for filming. She would later say her terror in those scenes was real. The more she struggled, the looser the hand's grip grew. When she thought she was about to fall, she had to signal Marion C. Cooper to stop filming. Wow. Oh, films are so different back in the day, weren't they? <laughs> How are we going to get her to realistically act terror? Well, we'll just make her terrified. Yeah, we'll put, <laughs> put her in a genuinely life-threatening situation. Yeah. That'll get it out of her. <laughs> uh, my last bit here of Kong trivia, and this is one of those uh, goofs. It's a revealing mistake in Kong. I just thought, I've never noticed it myself. I'm going off the article to prove that it's there, but it just sounds hilarious. I'm going to have to go back over the original film now and look for it. In the last third of the film, just after the announcement that Kong is coming, a native jumps out of his hut loses his balance and falls by a chicken coop. 
his wig comes off and gets caught on the fence. <laughs> I'm going to have to go back to Kong now just to check that that's there. Excellent. Okie dokie. Well, that's the end of our free podcast this week. We hope you've enjoyed the review. Sorry about no TV this week, but there will be uh, more forthcoming next week. I'll, I'll try and fit in two or three to make up for it. Well, but, I'm interested uh, in whatever the hell this thing is that you're watching at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Especially well, with that volume, you know. I haven't quite made my mind up on it yet as well, so I definitely uh, I definitely need to see it. It sounds like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we're off to record our premium podcast now. Uh, if you're interested in following our premium stuff, please do check out cinematalist.com for a link to our Patreon page. There's also a link there to the Wacko Jacko blog on which Liam puts his written musings and do check them out. They're very good indeed. You can also follow us at Cinematalcast on Twitter and you can follow Liam at... Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Excellent. Uh, yeah, that wraps up for the free one this week. Anything to add, Liam? Thank you very much, people. We really hope you enjoyed the time. Uh, well, if you're living UK side, at least I think a few things are opening up now. Mm. If you're living elsewhere, I don't know. <laughs> Hope your situation's improving. But uh, yeah, just everyone stay safe out there and go and get yourself a fucking well-earned pint in a sunny garden if the opportunity presents itself. Well, Andy's a bit of advice this week. Beer, curry, Saturday night, Godzilla versus Kong. Probably safer. Laugh your ass off at the plot and enjoy the big fight. Awesome. Mm. I may do just that myself. Okie dokie. Well, I uh, hope to see you on the premium stuff. If not, free one next week. Take it easy, guys. 